all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason, you. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Southern Remedies, Relatively Speaking, is a show that explores issues that relate to you and your family. To find out what we're all about, subscribe to the podcast by using any podcast app or by downloading our MPB Public Media app. This is Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. I'm not in the studio this morning, so there won't be any phone calls, but you can always email the show fit at mpbonline.org. With me is Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell. Good morning, Josie. We always appreciate you coming in when you can't make it to the studio to record these shows in advance. We always get some good discussion going and some great topics as well. And today we're going to talk about medical studies. So uh, let's start out by saying or asking who conducts medical studies? Well, you know, medical studies, who who conducts them really depends on what question we're trying to answer. But it can be a multitude of people. You know, it could be a sociologist who is looking at you know human behavior. It could be a psychologist who is, again, looking at something mental health related or behavior related. It could be a nurse, a nurse practitioner, a physician, or it could be a basic scientist like my husband, right? He works in a lab, works on actually making the chemical structures that might turn into a new medication. And then eventually that will move into medical studies that would have a clinician on board to help test those medications in in humans. So a whole variety of people, usually when there is a study being done, you'll have something called a principal investigator. And that's kind of the head person for that study. But it may be a doc, it may be a nurse, it may be a basic basic scientist. So when we talk about the, the purpose of a medical study, does it usually begin with a question about, you know, does this work or what happens here, that sort of thing? Yeah, you know, medical studies are here to help improve learn more about something or improve something. Uh, You know, when we're talking about medical studies, it's usually going to be, you know, how do we improve health? How do we prevent something? Um, How do we lower the risk of developing something? Or how do we create new medications, treatments, procedures, and follow how they work? But it always starts with a question. And um, I guess it's up to the researchers, but what's the process for deciding what will be studied? Well, you're right. You know, it's largely up to the the person conducting the study, but where they get their ideas from can be from a you know variety of different ways. Usually it's something that they're 
passionate about or that they feel very strongly about. Um, for me, uh, my research that I focus on is on lifestyles. So I look at you know which dietary patterns help people better or um, what is the best way to prescribe exercise and those types of things. So something that is important to me, not only just as a person, but that's important to the patients that I serve is what drives my research. Um, you know, I am in the process of I'm having to write something called a personal statement, which is more awkward than it sounds just having to write about yourself. But, you know, it's, it's basically what's your philosophy around healthcare? And for me, it always comes back to the the patient, right? It's always going to be the patient. And that may be the individual patient sitting in front of me, or that may be the larger population of Mississippi who I consider all my patients, you know. And when we're doing clinical care, I always think about how do we deliver the best clinical care to take care of the patient. When I'm teaching, I'm always trying to think about how do I educate future generations of healthcare providers so that they take really good care of patients. And then the research that we explore is, again, linked back to how do we take really good care of patients. And we do that through growing our knowledge and learning and adapting and coming up with, with new strategies for addressing you know, the chronic diseases that have been hanging around, hanging around forever. You know, heart disease isn't new, but we have to keep looking at uh, new ways to, to treat that or new strategies to do that. Sometimes it's also um, dictated by where you are, right? You know, us being here in Mississippi, we are positioned in a state that has a high rate of cardiometabolic issues, a lot of diabetes, a lot of um, high blood pressure and heart disease. So it just makes sense that research that comes out of Mississippi also focuses a lot on cardiometabolic um, health, as well as things like health disparities and social determinants of health, um, because that's that's what's important to our population. You know, that's interesting you mentioned that, because one of the ones in the central Mississippi area that I can think of is the Jackson Heart Study. Exactly. And that's actually, I believe, has been going on for a number of oh, years. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so... Are there phases so that in the first part maybe we're trying to figure out this, but in the over in the longer term we're maybe searching for other answers? Yeah. So it, again, it all depends on the type of study you're running. Uh, a lot of times we'll start with more observational studies, descriptive type type studies, where we're just looking at what are the problems that we're dealing with, and then that leads to other questions. You know when. Um, when I was a school-based nurse, one of the things that I kept noticing uh, on the kids that were coming in was a lot of them didn't have insurance. And, you know, knowing the qualifications for Medicaid, my brain went, why are they not on Medicaid? You know, and so that led to really digging into that and really seeing, you know, how many kiddos weren't on insurance, how many of them qualified for free and reduced price lunch, because that's usually a financial um marker that would also qualify them for Medicaid. And so that just kind of describing my population, then you were like, oh, well, now I know what to look at and what what to study. You know, I need to work on how do we get them enrolled and maintained on on Medicaid. So it, it you can uh, do so many things in research just um, on you know one kind of cohort of folks because there's always questions that are going to have to be answered. You're listening to a recorded in advance episode of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit with uh, Josie Bidwell and me, Kevin Farrell. And today we're talking about medical studies. So um, what I think we've talked about this before, but a lot of times you say that when it comes to results of medical studies, 
online you might see a lot of clickbait where it's some sort of catchy headline or whatever. So when people see something about a medical study, what are some of the things maybe that they should take away or maybe are there some things that they should feel cautious about? Yeah. Well, the general public is probably not going to get a notification of an actual study, right? They're going to get a media release or a press release off of um, a study. And that's not bad, but depending on um, what outlet puts that out, there may be a different kind of slant or spin to it. Um, or, I mean, you mentioned a clickbait, right? Like media outlets want people to click on their stories, you know, and so it may be a very um, engaging title to make you click on it. And that title may or may not reflect what the study actually uh, was about or what the findings actually were. So anytime I get a press release and I actually just got a press release forwarded to me about artificial sweeteners uh, to uh, and a request for an interview on artificial sweeteners. And the press release was sent, but the actual kind of study behind it is 90 pages, right? So the press release was a page and a half, and I got a ton of questions that this uh, interviewer is wanting answered. And I was like, well, I got to go read the 90 pages of the actual stuff and see what these conclusions were in there. Um, because that's, that's the bread and butter of it is, you know, what is the actual study say? Was the study good quality? Um, did it have enough people in it for me to be able to generalize it to, you know, the nation or the state or whatever it is I'm trying to generalize it out to? So just be cautious when you see, um, you know, press releases. There's always, there usually should always be a link to the original journal article or study article. Um, sometimes they're released kind of what we call preprint, which means um, the study's been done, it's been accepted by a journal or submitted at a journal, but the, the press release will come before it actually gets published. We saw that a lot more in COVID just because we were trying to get information out so much quicker uh, than the typical, you know, lengthy process it would take to get something submitted, reviewed, published, and then, and then the press release come out. Um, but it's... I always look for that link to the original. If we're not linking the original, it gives me pause as to what we're what we're trying to hide there. Because uh, you know, if it's a press release, I know my patients are going to see it and they're going to ask me questions about it. So I'm always going to try and go back to that original source and read it so that I can say, yeah, this was a great study. This was a really interesting finding, or you know, this really wasn't well done. And there, there I have a few kind of red flags that I see in this study that would make me really cautious about trying to implement this for you. So um, you had mentioned the top that sometimes it's involved with a sort of a di number of different medical professionals in the same study. Mm -hmm. So when we talk about that, something like UMMC, which is a large uh, teaching hospital, but one of the largest medical uh, probably uh, is it the largest medical center in Mississippi? Or is close it, to it? Well, it's the only academic medical center in the state. So um, that's where the, the bulk of your you know your, a lot of your research is going to come out and come from um, because we have so many different schools on campus. We've got School of Graduate Studies that is going to be training people like my husband in things like biochemistry and microbiology and virology and those types of things. And then you got the medical school and the nursing school and dental. And that's one of the coolest things about doing research within an academic medical center is the fact that you get to do it in a team, you know, and you get to pull in um, folks. So what I've worked really hard for over the past, you know, six years or so that we've had lifestyle medicine is if somebody wants to do something lifestyle related, they call us, you know, and say, hey, we're thinking about writing um, or doing a study on 
artificial sweeteners or whatever, you know, can we pick your brain about that? So even if I'm not directly involved in the study, just on the front end for information gathering, um, you're always find an expert for something in somewhere like, a, you know, a big medical center. So a couple minutes are left in this first segment, and I think a term that a lot of us are familiar with is, is a con- control group. Mm-hmm. So if you would just give us a general idea of how a study works in terms of some people get this and some people don't. Yeah, well, in, in that particular sense, you're talking about an experimental um, design. So there are a couple of different designs of studies. One is an experimental, the other is an observational. And in an experimental study, we're actually going to do something to one group and not do it to another group and make measure the, the difference there. And that's usually when you see uh, medications um, or, you know, different treatment techniques being done. You know, this group will get um, the new medicine and this group will not. Now, the uh, important thing with that is that they you don't necessarily know. The, the, the individual person doesn't know whether they're getting the placebo or the, the trial drug because that could influence results that way. Um, but you in a true control group like that, you try to match those things. So like the treatment group wouldn't have only men in it and the control group only has women in it because then you're not comparing the treatment because you've got a whole bunch of differences there. I think uh, from the notes that I read through uh, preparing for this, and they were very sketchy to be to be <laughs> sure, uh, but there's a couple of different kinds of studies, and I think we mentioned one before, but let's start by talking about uh, what a clinical study is. Well, you know, a clinical study is usually going to involve people, you know, because it's usually in the clinical setting, whereas medical studies is a much broader term and could be some of that kind of uh, what we call bench research or things that are, are done in the lab um, versus things that are done out in the clinical setting. Uh, and we mentioned experimental um, studies before, and that's really getting into something we call study design. And that's how we set the study up. And that's going to lead to how many people that you need to, to be in the study, um, you know, what type of instruments you're going to use to collect information on, the type of data analysis that you're going to do. And the type of design you use, again, all goes back to what that question is. So whenever I'm working with um, students or residents and in, in writing their kind of research project that they're doing, I always say, what, what's your question? You know, and they'll kind of look at you like, but I want to know about this. I'm like, yeah, but what's your question? Like, what specifically are we trying to find out? Because that's going to tell me whether we need to do something that's experimental or whether we're going to do the other kind, which is uh, what's called an observational study. And I mean, that's kind of exactly what it says. Observation. Now, that doesn't mean we just uh, like put people in a room and just watch them and observe them, although that could technically be a type of observational research. Um, When we're talking about observational studies, we're usually doing that to observe the effect of some kind of risk, right? Um, Whether that be it could be a treatment or an intervention. Now, this it gets a little confusing because this is not me putting people into different groups and giving them different treatments. This is just me observing people who may be receiving uh, a certain type of, of treatment or intervention. So it's not that um, kind of prescribing the intervention that way. Um, and there are a couple different kinds of that uh, as well. The more common ones are things called cohort studies or case control studies. But the way I like to explain um an observational study is thinking about a group of people, which that's what a cohort is, right? And that they're linked together in some way. And that could be by 
age group. That could be by geographical area. That could be by, you know, a certain institution that they're at. And comparing the outcomes in the people that are exposed to something versus those that are not exposed. So the most classic example we used to think about is like smoking and lung cancer, right? So we choose a group, we track their smoking habits, and then we also track the development of lung cancer. And then you kind of compare those, right, to see if the folks who smoked had more cases of lung cancer versus the people who didn't smoke, right? So then you can say whether smoking is or is not associated with an increased risk for uh, lung cancer. Now, what I didn't say is that it causes it, right? So observational studies, uh, we are very careful not to use the word causation, right? It's just more about things that are associated with or correlated with, and we can kind of judge and grade the degree of correlation that exists. So that's why sometimes you'll see if you do X thing, it increases your risk of this by two times or three times because there are very uh, in-depth statistical tests that can be run to actually give a, a quantifiable number on those things. One of the other types of observational things that you may see is where we kind of identify a group of people with a health problem and then a similar group of people without the problem, right? And then we compare them in respect to exposures that they may have had. And this can be helpful in like rare diseases, right? Where you may not, you know, if I wanted to do a study on diabetes, there are so many people with that, that it's going to be much easier for me to kind of grab a cohort of folks to be able to do that versus maybe something that's more rare, like ALS um, it is going to be more helpful to kind of have this group of folks with ALS, this group without, and then maybe look back at exposures that they've had over time that maybe could have increased their risk for that. Uh, so going back to what we we're talking about, the designing the study and, um, how do you – and if there's a formula or whatever, but how do you determine the size of your cohort? How do you know when you have a large enough sample to to make something valid? There is a, a calculation for that. It's called a power analysis. And so, you know, at this point in the study, if you're not someone whose main job is research, like me, right? My main job is a clinician. Um, I always consult with a person called a biostatistician, which that's that's their job is to help in the research design. I mean, they have many jobs, but to help in the research design, um, they also can help you with the power calculation so that you know how many people you need to enroll um, and whether that's going to be feasible. Right. You know, if you uh, need two million people, you know, for whatever it is you're looking at to be significant. There are only 2.9 million people in the state of Mississippi. So that would require a whole lot of folks to, to be in the study. So that may mean you have to change your setting. You know, it may have to move to a national type study, that kind of thing. Or you may need to tweak your question um, and get something different. But yes, there is a, a, um, a calculation that can be done to tell you how many folks you need. And the other thing I think would be you talked about, you know, you ask your people what, you know, what's the question? What are you trying to find out? And I would imagine that the the narrower you can get the focus of your question, maybe a clearer study you'll have. Yeah, absolutely. It can. Now we have to think about the more narrow we make something, how how are we going to measure that? Right. You know, and it could be when we talk about measurement of outcomes, when you're thinking about a, like a true clinical study, it may be something very 
kind of easy to measure. It may be cholesterol levels or blood sugar levels or weight or blood pressure, those kinds of things. But if it is um, more on the behavioral side, which is where a lot of kind of my focus comes in, then it's going to be like questionnaires and surveys. And when you're collecting that type of information from folks, it's not just, I think I'm going to come up with a list of questions and I'm going to ask people those questions. That is not a good study. And so that's one of the things when I'm reading um, a report, I'll go, what were my, what were the data collection instruments used for this? And if it's not one that's been well-researched and well-validated, that can limit the kind of believability of the findings, right? If it's just a, a questionnaire that the researcher developed and it hasn't been tested or validated, um, which there are different types of ways we validate things, then you can't necessarily say that question accurately assessed vegetable intake or whatever, you know. So there are great validated tools out there for a lot of things that we um, that we use in, in medical research. And so that, again, increases the believability of the results or the generalizability of those results. You know, I think when the study is over, there's some review of it. And I think we'll talk about that later in the yeah. show. But is that important? And is it useful to have the review at the front end? Is, if you have a proposal, someone else will look through it and say, well, I would, your question is too narrow, not narrow enough, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. And so um, what you're referring to is peer review, right, which usually means it's being reviewed by um, similarly prepared individuals. Um, And we tend to think about peer review coming in on the back end when it comes to publication time and that kind of stuff. But there absolutely can be peer review on the front end, especially if you're applying for funding, right? If this is going to be a a larger study that's going to require money to get it done, then you usually apply for grants uh, and funding uh, sources to get that done. And those are all reviewed by by peers, right? So uh, usually if there is a a grant out there that has something to do with lifestyle medicine, often I'll get asked to be a reviewer on those grants because you want somebody who knows the science in that area um, so that um, if you're asking a question and you think it's never been asked before, that expert may go, this has already been done, right? How is this going to add to the the field of knowledge uh, related to this? Or based on all the things that we know about this phenomenon, why is this the question that you're asking? You know, or I don't think that this study design is going to ad- adequately answer that question. Or there's not enough people in your study, and all those different kinds of things. So the good thing about um, education and medical education is we all go through those classes as well. So our instructors and our professors they do that for us. They're our peer reviewers when we're learning this process. Uh, so that once we graduate and go start to do um, independent research. We kind of know what uh, the basics uh, of things that are needing to be done, but peer review is still an important part of the process. And in my mind, it, it sounds like observational and clinical studies kind of go hand in hand because it would seem like maybe results that you got from an observational study might lead to a clinical study of some sort. Kevin, you're ready for your degree because <laughs> um, <laughs> that is exactly what happens a lot of the times. You know, we will see something from in an observational based study and then decide that we want to develop an intervention um, around whatever that observation was. And then that moves into an experimental study. You know, if we um, show uh, that, you know, doing this particular behavior Uh, leads to this, then we may actually make that a formal treatment that we put people in. Like, you know, um, people that exercise more 
tend to have less heart disease. Well, now we may want to actually make that a formal intervention and put people in this group exercises, this group doesn't exercise, let's see what their uh, their heart outcomes are. So they absolutely can, can feed into each other. Again, got about uh, two minutes, maybe a minute and a half left in this segment, and I hope I don't uh, throw you under the bus with a, a oh, curveball goodness. here. But the history of medical studies, is is this a, a fairly modern development in, in medicine? Oh, no, they've been asking questions as long as there's a question to have been asked, you know, and that's uh, – but that's also the, the evolution of uh, of the field of medicine, right, you know, where you, we may have initially thought that X, Y, and Z caused this particular phenomenon, and then as – medical science has advanced, techniques have advanced, it's uh, it's grown. And kind of the best example of that is just before a microscope, right? You know, before microscopes were a thing, you know, there were just kind of general theories about how infections happened and, and things like that. But now that you have the ability to actually look down into the cell, you learn more and can ask a whole new different set of questions. I'm not in the studio this morning, so this is a pre-recorded show with no phone calls. But you can always email the show, fit at mpbonline.org. With me is Southern Remedy producer Kevin Farrell. Thanks, Josie. We're here this morning talking about medical studies, how they're conducted, and a little bit about the results. And I'm wondering, um, the term you used was levels of evidence, Mm -hmm. so I guess it's trying to determine how valid results that you might get are? Right, or how generalizable they are. Um, you know, and again, that goes back to the question we're trying to answer, you know, and whether we're trying to apply the findings to a small group of people or whether this is going to give us um, kind of guidelines and recommendations for population level things. And, you know, when we think about levels of evidence, which again, whenever I read a study, I always think, you know, what type of study design is this? Because they're all going to have limitations to them. But kind of the, the if you think about it as a pyramid, kind of the base or the, the lowest level on that pyramid is something called expert opinion, right? And that usually means there's not any hard data around to say for or against something. But kind of the leading experts in this particular field would say this is the the right thing to do. Now, as the research develops and as more studies are done, that may be proved incorrect or it may be supported. Um, But that's kind of low level evidence, right? Like um, you could have an ice cream store owner, right, that really loves pistachio flavored ice cream, right? And as an, as an ice cream expert, he would say the best flavor is pistachio. Um, that may not be generalizable to, to everybody, right? Um, and so we would need to do a much bigger study a much, much with a whole bunch of different flavors to, to choose from and all of these different kinds of things. So expert opinion may or may not be, be applicable to kind of larger groups of people. Then you start to move into some of those observational studies that we already talked about. Um, but before we get to those bigger studies, there's something called a case report. And you'll often see health uh, healthcare providers write and submit case reports to journals. Um, and it's usually if we see something out of the ordinary, right? Like um, an incredibly rare disease that presents uh, to clinic for us. Uh, we may submit a case report of, um, you know, a 25-year-old male who presents with this symptom, right? And then we write that up with, you know, what all the symptoms were, what the physical exam looked like, what tests we ordered, and what the ultimate diagnosis was, because that helps 
other clinicians start to think about if this rare symptom shows up in someone, this is kind of what I should be thinking about. Or, you know, uh, we just recently did a case report um, where um, we had a, a patient that we were working with trying to put their diabetes in remission. And there are lots of uh, kind of reports out there of people who go, you know, full plant-based diet, doing all the pillars of lifestyle medicine, can reverse their diabetes. And this particular patient did not adapt um, or adopt that lifestyle fully, right? So we kind of had like a partial uptake of, of lifestyle medicine, but we were still able to put her diabetes into, you know, kind of kind of remission and, and get her into normal control off of medications and those kinds of things. So that is a good report to put out there because then other people can try and replicate that, right? And try and take that result. And then it becomes what we call case series, which may be multiple patients all of the same, um, with the same disorder or criteria that have all had similar results, then that grows into these kind of bigger, um, you know, bigger studies, which would move into observational level studies um, that then would usually move into something called a randomized control trial, which is kind of the gold standard in, in medical research of determining whether a treatment has an effect or not, right? So you've got a, a couple of words in that statement. You've got randomized, you've got control in there, right? So we talked about control groups before. So they're the, the group that, that doesn't get whatever the treatment is. The randomized part is really important. So let's say we're trying to test this medicine versus no medicine, right? You don't want everybody that's really excited to take pills to go to the the treatment group and people who don't like pills don't like pills to go to the control group right you want to you want a good mix of, of people across that and that's a very simple way to think about it but usually when you're doing a, a randomized control trial you recruit a group of folks and then you use some type of um, randomization algorithm to assign them of whether they're going to be in the treatment group or um, the control group and that just takes kind of human bias out of the situation there and then there's even a step above randomized control trials, which is something called a either a systematic review or a meta-analysis. And that's really a collection of individual studies that have been done, pooled together. So, you know, you could uh, go find a study right now that says um, that uh, meat is the best food for you to eat, right? You could find another one that says plants are the best food for you to eat. And so you're going, well, which one do I believe? Right. Well, you could get down into the, you know, the nitty gritty of the details of that and see which one had, you know, better design and all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, a study that says what is the best dietary pattern for health is going to give you a better answer because it's going to take those studies that have meat-based diets. It's going to take those studies that have plant-based diets, and it's going to pull that data when it can and draw a bigger conclusion from the multitude of studies that are out there. That sounds interesting because, again, you're sort of taking data that was kind of created for one thing and, and mixing it around to try mm-hmm. to get some other... Uh, and um, when they start doing that ice cream study, I want to be involved. You want to in be in, involved in that, yeah. And you know, for that one, you know, the way I always think about it is the options that you give people to choose again matters, right? You know, we talked about the instrument you use for collection earlier in the show. If I gave you a survey that says what is the best ice cream, and I only gave you vanilla and chocolate to pick from. 
one of them is going to win, right? But that doesn't mean that's generalizable to all ice cream flavors. That just means out of the two choices you gave me, I prefer this one. Um, sometimes open open field answers are are the better thing to to get um, you know really true information. We call those things uh, qualitative uh, studies. So that um, is. What do you think is the best ice cream? Because it may be Mamaw's um, homemade peach ice cream that she makes, right? That would never be uh, a choice on a, on a standardized survey. And when you were describing the case reports, to me, it almost sounded like a bookmark. So when something's going along, someone says, hey, we want to, we might want to look at that later. Let's stick something in there so mm-hmm. that we know that we observe this thing. Right, right. Absolutely. You know, uh, one of the first case reports I ever did was on a kid who came in um, at the school clinic and he was having some visual issues. And, you know, normally that's going to be, I left my glasses at home, you know, but it actually wound up being something different. And so that was a great case report of a very common symptom that comes in and a very uncommon finding that you would see from that. So let's talk about the the phases of a medical study. And I would imagine that we've kind of gone through a couple of these. First, you have to decide what it is that you want to study. Then you've got to create that report um, uh, or the the rules, I guess, of the study. Um, and then then I guess the next stage would be recruiting study participants. Yeah. So, I mean, I think you could could step back and take it completely out of kind of the medical study framework and just say, you know, what's the scientific process? Right. And that, again, always starts with the question, like, what do you want to know? Right. What is the best flavor of ice cream? Yeah. And then you're going to do background research on that. So you would go to the literature and look at all the other studies that have been done about ice cream and see which ones have shown up as consistently being the preferred flavor um, in different different areas and locations. And then you're going to make a hypothesis, which is what you think is going to happen, right? So I think that the best flavor of ice cream in Mississippi is going to be, um, it's birthday cake, because that's my favorite kind, right? Um, that a hypothesis is not, it's not going to be proven true. But, you know, you make this this kind of hypothesis, and then you design the experiment for that. Once you do the experiment, you collect the data, you analyze that data, you draw a conclusion from it, and then you communicate it, right? That's where you see those press releases or journal articles and those kinds of things. That's, that's kind of just the scientific process. Now, in terms of phases of a medical study, um, probably the most common thing we would think about here would be one of those clinical trials, right? Um, Clinical trials do progress uh, according to phases. There's phase one trials, phase two, phase three, and phase four trials. You know, clinical trials are usually going to be around some um, medication, uh, you know, We had clinical trials around COVID vaccine and those types of things, and we got to see those things roll out um, quicker. And that was a lot of pushback that people said, you know, how were you able to run these clinical trials and and get all the data that you needed? And it's because sometimes we were they ran um, kind of multiple phases at the same time instead of kind of one after the other. But usually with like a phase one trial, it's a drug or a treatment that you're going to use a very, very small group of people on. And you're really trying to get... um, like what the the safety is around this, maybe even the t- the dose of the the drug that you're going to need. Um, and with the COVID vaccines, there are some people who got varying doses of that initially because we we're trying to see at what dose does the correct immune response occur, right? Because we don't want to give 
too much of something uh, just because we can. We want to get that kind of nuanced there. Uh, and then phase two, you kind of move into a little bit larger groups and you're looking at you know further effectiveness of that medication, further safety profiles of it. Phase three, it's a much bigger group of folks. You start to look at maybe comparing it to other treatments that are out there. Again, looking for adverse effects and side effects that are going on. And then phase four trials is often when we see a medicine that's gone to market um, and we're just continuing to follow outcomes um, of people on those different kinds of things. Um, But those are very structured, very regimented process um, for clinical trials. They're done um, very, uh, very by the book. Good morning, Josie. We have been talking about uh, medical studies uh, this hour, and I think we'll wrap up uh, some interesting questions about uh, how to choose study participants. Uh, and the first one would be, and I, it's funny, I think the answer to this is it might be yes and no, and that would be, is diversity of study participants important? I imagine that maybe sometimes that answer is yes, but it could also maybe be no. Well, in the running theme of the show, it depends on the question, <laughs> right? So, you know... Usually, if we're trying to generalize something to the population at large, yes, we want diversity in that group so that we can say this works for men, it works for women, it works for Caucasians, it works for African Americans. It's a good recommendation for younger people and for older people and you know people that have high blood pressure and they don't. So you want that kind of diversity. If we're trying to study a you know, impact of something within a cultural setting, we, we may not want that, right? Like if I'm trying to do something um, within, um, you know, an indigenous population, right, then they that group may not be super diverse because I'm looking for um, something within that small group of people. Or if I'm looking, let's say I wanted to look at um, depression in college students, right? Um, if I wanted to say, what are the drivers of depression in college students in the U.S., I'm going to want a diverse group, right? I'm going to want graduate students and uh, males and females and you know multiple different types of um, degree programs and fields of study and that kind of stuff versus if I wanted to say, what are the main drivers of depression in um nursing students in Mississippi, right? Like that's going to be a, a, a less diverse group of, of folks, right? So nursing is predominantly a female um, profession right now. We're seeing much more men enter that profession, which I think is wonderful. But the, you're, you're never going to have kind of a 50-50 match um, if you're, you're just surveying all, um, all nursing students, uh, especially you know, here in Mississippi. And so it just, again, just depends on what your, your question is in terms of how, uh, what the makeup of that population needs to look like. So when we talk about how study participants are chosen, you had an, an ironic uh, situation <laughs> where you said as you were coming in to, to record the show this morning or this afternoon, uh, you got a, a, a proposal to be in a study. I did. I did, actually. So there are a variety of ways to recruit participants for that. This was a text message that came to me um, from a research group um, that is looking for healthcare professionals to be in this study. Now, usually those are going to be um, like maybe a study about prescribed practices or, you know, like which one of these meds would you be most likely to prescribe or, you know, something like that. Um, But it it had a link to a survey for me to take, which would be what they call a qualifying survey, because all um, studies, we have something called inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria when we're um, 
picking participants for this study. Um, so if this was a study about um, pediatrics, maybe, then when I filled out that survey and it said, you know, what is your main area of specialty? And I say preventive medicine, I'm probably going to get an automated email that says you don't qualify for this particular study. All right. Um, which happens a lot um, it, when you subscribe to a lot of medical um like platforms, you'll get requests for surveys all the time, and sometimes you qualify for them, sometimes you don't. Um, but the general population, you may see flyers in your doctor's office. You know, uh, when we were running our um, teaching kitchen, uh, we had a, a um, flyer in the bathroom that was like, "Are you interested in being part of a teaching kitchen to help with your high blood pressure?" You know, and it had a number on there for you to call. Um, you may the your actual clinician may refer you to a, um, a researcher. You know if you express interest in wanting to be part of um, a study or a, a clinical trial for something, um, you may see ads uh, on television. You may see it in uh, newspapers or just on flyers, radio, all different kinds of, of um, ways of kind of getting involved. But if the if it's something that you're like really interested in, like maybe you know you have a family member who's been affected by a rare disorder and you. You want to help, you know, kind of add to the body of, of knowledge for that. There is actually um, something called researchmatch.org that is run by um, the National Institutes of Health where you can go and register and then that will kind of match you with um, researchers who are doing things um, in that kind of same area. So our, our study our, um, study organizers and the people who conduct the study looking for that person who has maybe some sort of in, in a higher level of interest or is it important to have kind of the average dose, it's like I'm just in this study kind of thing as well. It depends, right? <laughs> so, you know, if it's going to be something that you have to show up for, right, then somebody who has the ability to, to get to that appointment, and some studies actually pay for that, right? Some of the benefit of being in the study would be transportation to the center to have your blood drawn or, you know, whatever it is we're doing. Um, but, you know, for our project that we were doing with the teaching kitchen, like your ability to come to an evening cooking class was important, right? Which may not be as important if, if I'm just um, doing one of these observa observational studies where I'm just kind of tracking behavior over time. Um, that may be that I just ask you to do a survey at baseline. At six months, I ask you to do another survey. In a year, I ask you to do another one. That's going to have less involvement uh, of your time versus something where you have to come frequently to, to either get the treatment or participate in some type of class or something. Okay, so if someone's listening and thinks that they might be interested in trying to be a part of a study, you had mentioned that there was that uh, website to go to that says, yeah, I'm interested. Mm -hmm. um, but what are some things to keep in mind? I would think number one is you're possibly committing to some sort of a long-term commitment. Right. Well, the thing to remember is – so. Every study that involves human beings goes through um, an ethics review. We call it an institutional review board, and it makes sure that we're doing things ethically to, to humans, not just doing things for no reason. Uh, and part of that is the informed consent process, where your researcher is going to go through all the parts of the study with you, and the things that you want to focus in on is making sure that you understand the risks of being in the study, because there's always going to be a risk in being in any study, even if it's just taking a survey, right? And then what are the benefits to being in this? Because there's usually are going to be, now that could be maybe you get a new blender if you come to all the cooking classes or something like that. Or it may be that you're getting a treatment that potentially could could make you better. Um, and then the, that you have the right to leave the study at any point in time. And that's always important to remember that if you're participating in a research study, you're in charge, 
you don't want to come anymore, you can stop. The one, I guess, that I'm sort of involved in, my dad uh, died of Alzheimer's, so I volunteered several years ago to have my DNA um, I guess, tossed into the hat, as it were, um, not for any specific study, but to say if someone is a study and they need people, they've got this pool of people to pull from. And mm-hmm. I think I've had to uh, I think I've done the little swab thing a couple of times. But and the, but it also it's something about a certain marker or something. Anyway, uh, I'm sort of tangent, tangentially involved in that. And it's uh, I, and, and in, my, in my case, again, it was because of personal experience. I felt I wanted to get involved with that. So um, <clears throat> um so um kind of lost my train of thought. That's here. okay. I wanted to make one point okay. of if you when you got your covid vaccine, a lot of times um at least after that first initial series, you probably received a website or a little QR code that was for vsafe um which you signed up for that and it asked you questions like how are you feeling today? Did you have any fever? You know, those kinds of things. And then it spaced it out, right? Like it would send you one two weeks after your vaccine. And actually, I mean, it's been two and a half years since my initial series. And a couple months ago, I got another email from, or text message from VSAFE that was just checking in. And that was a form of research, right? They were check, checking long-term side effects and, you know, uh, a safety of that vaccine. So that's a, a form of research as well. A couple minutes left uh, in the show, and we used the term peer-reviewed earlier when we were kind of on the front end of the study, that that it's reviewed by your peers to make sure it seems to be scientifically sound. I imagine there's also that here at the end of the study. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So kind of the completion of of most of these studies is going to be dissemination, right? We want to um, get the results out there. Now, sometimes the results are not what you wanted them to be or thought they were going to be. But that's equally as important, right? Because that adds, again, to the the fund of knowledge around that particular result. And that's really important for the researcher to not um, not not report uh, results that maybe didn't prove what you wanted it to prove, right? Because it's all evidence out there. But when you go to disseminate this or publish this um, in a journal, that's usually, depending on the journal, most of them are peer-reviewed, are going to send a copy of your uh, study to peer experts for review. And I serve as peer expert reviewers for several journals. And so I usually get stuff related to public health and nutrition and lifestyle medicine. And I'm going to review it and I'm going to ask these same questions that we've talked about today. Is this study design appropriate for the question that was being asked? Were there enough people? And most importantly, do the statistics that you talk about match up with the conclusions that you say are there? All right, that's going to wrap us up for today. Great stuff, Josie. Very interesting. Thanks, folks, for listening to the show this morning. For Josie Bidwell, I'm Kevin Farrell. You can email the show anytime at fit at mpbonline.org and tune in every Monday morning at 11 for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.